Hey, Anthony, it's that time again. To infiltrate the Oscars with our movie on how to save a mockingbird? Yeah, yeah w- wait, no. No, not at all. Then what? It's time to make the podcast. Oh, 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 oh yeah, that thing. Once again, we have reached that time of the week. Time to dive into the movies we love and the movies we wish we could forget. Pitting them against each other to receive praise uh, or hatred. Based on a scale of our choosing. So let's jump into it. This is the Double Feature Podcast. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Double Feature Versus, where we have uh, double the new releases, uh, double the frame stories of uh, uh, body switching and uh, tales of a lost long Lauren career. I don't know. Whatever. How's it going, Brett? <laughs> it's going good. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the joining uh, theme is between these two, but um, uh, double the yeah. new streaming movies, there all provided by Netflix. <laughs> right. Uh, well, one of them's provided by Netflix. The other one is uh, on demand. Uh, but today, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about Freaky with uh, Vince Vaughn and uh, David Fincher's new film Mank with uh, Gary Oldman. So, uh, which one you want to do first, man? You want to do uh, um, comedy first, drama first? What are we doing? Let's start with Freaky, because okay. this is the one that I think more people are going to recognize the name of right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so Freaky, uh, this is uh, another film by Christopher Landon, who made uh, Happy Death Day. I still haven't seen that one, but I heard good things. It's an okay one. It's... Yeah. Uh, it's one of those movies that has some nice little horror elements to it. Uh, right. But when you kind of look at it as a big picture movie, you kind of go, well, that plot was kind of lacking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I know they're both under the Blumhouse productions banner, you know? Yep. Um, so, you know, with Blumhouse, you're either, you're either getting straight horror or a nice genre blend of horror and comedy, horror and thriller, so on and so forth. You know, you make some pretty solid movies. Um, I think this one fell more on the comedy side than the horror side, personally. It did. It's, it's definitely a comedy horror rather than a horror comedy. Um, you know what, man? I like this. I thought this was this was a nice uh, late late in the year hit. Um, that it was a uh, it uh, it actually made me laugh, and it has some solid solid horror gore moments to it. What did you think? It, see, I'm not normally a huge fan of the Bloomhouse uh, movies. Like I said, mm-hmm. like Happy Death Day, it has a couple horror elements that are nice, but overall the movie is just kind of blah. And this movie definitely had more to it. I was definitely a little bit more entertained with this one, uh, but it, it just had gruesome gory. But it would turn to gruesome gory, and it then did. it would turn to cartoony gory very like quickly. And it didn't seem to know exactly where it wanted to be with it. Like, it starts off with uh, the murder in, like, was it a restaurant or, like, a wine cellar? Or? It, so it was um, it was a bunch of uh, high school kids hanging out at uh, one of the uh, kids' uh, rich, um, uh, th- their parents' rich house. Okay. And, um, yeah, I felt like that one scene with the bottle sticking it down the kid's throat. I felt like that that was like like very gory. Yeah, so I, I did not like, like. I saw that and I was like, oh, I can tell where this is going. Oh, I don't like this at all. Don't just just make it I, stop already. <laughs> I feel like I'm prepared for that kind of gore with a with a saw film. 
you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like with something like this that's supposed to be comedy horror, I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of like the, the extremity, the extremity of both worlds. Because I feel like when you look at a film like like Scream, which was like a satire of horror films, mm-hmm. it's gory, but it's it's gory from a it's it, it's gory with like like um precision. You know, yeah. it's not over the top gory. It, it's um, it's shied away gory, where you kind of get the idea right. of this is gory, but they don't show it. There you uh, go. With this one, it's just full on like camera angle right there, showing you just the pure gore of it. And it's just oh, it, it's very saw like. It's o- it's over the top. I'll say that it is over the top, and the com- comedy is over the top too. But I think it's good over the top comedy. Um, it can be a little uh, can be a little um, uh, how do I say this um, mixed baggish. Yeah, it, this is a very tropey movie, which with some of it it works. You yeah, know, some I think of the it comedy the, works. the comedy part works with it, but then they fall into other tropes, and you can tell that it wasn't like them making fun of the trope. It just actually naturally fell into a trope. And one of the biggest things is the writing for like the characters' interactions is all over the place. Uh, some of it just feels so ham-fisted and others just flow amazingly and it's hilarious. And I think a lot of the ones that flow good are because of Vince Vaughn. It is like, I feel like, um, like the last good Vince Vaughn comedy I saw and I might've missed some in between, but, um, the breakup with him and Jennifer Aniston couples therapy was, I like, I wasn't really Mm -hmm. a big fan of that one. But um, I feel like this is like a great like because he's been doing some dramatic stuff lately, too. But I feel like this is a great comeback comedy role for him. Yeah, this is probably I'm, I can't even remember the last Vince Vaughn movie that I watched that I like fully enjoyed. This is the Swingers. first one in a while. It might have been that. Swingers and then there's made like he's had some pretty solid comedies, especially with John Favreau. Um but yeah, I really like this movie, man. I, I feel like this is up there with The Breakup because I feel like The Breakup is a great romantic comedy and this is a great, you know, comedy horror. Um, and I think Catherine Newton um, as the serial killer role, she wasn't bad either. See, I didn't really care for her scenes too much when she became the serial killer. And well, even sold it. before that, like her lines and dialogue seemed to be the most bland out of all of them. Like, anytime she had a speaking role, it just basically was nails on a chalkboard of stupidity to me. You know? I, th- I think that's on purpose, though. I think because because he's such an evil serial killer, that's why it's so comedic to have, a, like, a teenage girl play that role and say those kind of, like, typical evil serial killer lines. Like, that That kind of made sense to me. I'm like, I, I get that. See, even then, like, the scenes, even when uh, before the swap and after the swap... Mm-hmm. It, it everything is so bland with her too like even when like they're sitting girl. at the like uh what is it the breakfast table and everything like that and yeah. you know her mom's like you haven't been the same ever since well you know with your dad and I mean, that's, that's it, typical horror stuff though like this we're not watching an oscar worthy film here <laughs> no not we, at all you know we there's certain tropes you're going to have in a horror <laughs> film like you 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 have the tortured final girl in the film like like that's sydney prescott in scream that's nancy in nightmare on elm street like you you know i i expected all that yeah um also with 
her happening to like kill everybody that was mean to her before the body swap and everything it's like oh that that's convenient you you made us hate all these people right before they died <laughs> right right you know it, i feel like you're dragging this film for stuff that usual horror films do i know like, it it's this I'd, it's the typical horror film stuff that got me on this one how dare you throw these basic uh rules of screenwriting moments at me I've seen enough horror movies to know where this is going. Do something different, damn it. <laughs> Dude, it's like that sometimes with movies, man. Like, you, you watch a movie and you're like, okay, I know this is going to make me laugh at some points. I know at some points I'm going to say, ew. But I know where this is going. I know where this is going. See, with them taking, like, the comedy aspect, because horror comedies, I think, do a fantastic job a lot of the time. Uh, mm. Like the Leprechaun series, I absolutely Still love watch it. Those, man. Oh, you I, gotta I watch, watch those. I want to watch Leprechaun Back to the Hood because I know that's like a. Not only is that like a like a quote unquote hood classic. People love that movie. Yeah, how ridiculous it is. It, it, so a lot of horror comedies just blow it out of the water when it comes to how they can make fun of the tropes of horror and do all this stuff. So I was kind of expecting that with this movie, but instead it kind of fell into the tropes instead of making fun of them. You know. I can see that. I can see that. So Definitely. I guess I came into it expecting a little bit more because Bloomhouse has done the kind of mocking the tropes kind of thing before, and they've done falling into the tropes before. So this was kind of like a mix of the two, and as a result, it left a lot of it kind of me wanting more with some of it. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Um, I really feel like uh, like I really feel like Vince Vaughn was. Um, his his moments with the uh the uh the male the male love interest of the film like that moment in the back of the car oh yeah laugh so much I'm like dude this is hilarious he says let's let's kiss at a at a at a at a time where my hand is not bigger than your face <laughs> yeah I I can say pretty much the way that my like reaction to this movie went was you know at the beginning going oh this is gonna just be a very tropey movie. Okay, that was interesting. And then they switched. And then I was like, okay, this is getting a little bit more interesting. And then every scene with Vince Vaughn after the switch, I was just like, okay, this is good. I'm liking this. And then it switched back to Millie's body. And I'd be like, okay, I'm watching. And then Vince Vaughn would come back and be like, okay, cool. Vince Vaughn's back. This is going to be great. You know, like that was my reaction. The entire movie was a roller coaster of going, oh, Vince Vaughn's gone again. (gasps) Vince Vaughn's back. Yeah, I hear you. I can I I can see you on that. Um, actually, I, I I gotta admit, I did like Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton. Like, I feel like Catherine Newton held her own as as the serial killer. Like, um, I know you said to you it it felt a little like wooden, but I um I don't know. I, I she sold me. See, I didn't think she was bad as a serial. I don't think she was bad by any means, but her scenes just mm. weren't as entertaining to watch. I got you. You know, like you knew exactly what was coming. She was going to kill somebody and then it would go back to Vince Vaughn. And it just kept going into that cycle and everything like that, where her scenes just weren't really that entertaining unless one of the other characters was with her. Like when she was uh, strapped down in the house with um, I can't remember what his name was, the uh, the gay one. Uh, I'm trying to you know what scene I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I, I hear you. I know what scene you're talking about. Like, that was a funny scene with her. Right. But at the same time, she had no dialogue in that scene. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I I, I hear you. I, I I get what you're saying. Um, I feel like the best friends, like it, the you know the you know you got the gay friend, and then you got the uh, the token black girlfriend. Well, she's not a token black girl, but the, you know the one friend that's 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 of a different minority. Yeah. Um, like you know, there are tropes too, but I feel like they were tropes that worked. You know, like there's the one great line where the guy. They're both running from Vince Vaughn. And he's like, I'm gay. You're black. We're not going to win this fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I can say that, you know, they definitely used the trope of the gay best friend to the highest limits that they could. <laughs> like they knew exactly yeah. they, what they were doing when they cast, you know, we just need a gay best friend in this movie. That's not sold without the right gay performance. Right. He, he did yeah. fabulous in that uh, role. Right. <laughs> he did fabulous. He, he did, did fabulous. fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about uh, Alan Ruck, uh, Mr. Ferris Bueller himself, uh, Cameron, Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Um, I don't I don't know how I felt about him as the woodshop teacher. I felt like I understood the, the shout out, you know, the shout out to ferris bueller another high school classic but mm-hmm. i don't know how i felt about the woodshop teacher i felt like i don't know it kind of seemed like he was a dick just to be a dick he was he you know it, he came off as like the cartoonishly evil teacher you know uh oh look who's next millie but my project is actually due on the 16th so i don't have it done yet Oh, well, that's too bad because we're right, ready to like, present it now. And it's like, no, that's mm, no teacher is actually like that. You could even right, have like, the most evil teacher that's totally vindictive against you and they wouldn't be like that. I feel like you you could sell an evil character like that if there was a reason why he was a dick to her. Like maybe it was because and like like, like maybe he dated her mom and they didn't work out. So he's going to be like a like an asshole to, to her daughter in class. But it's like I just felt like that that scene was like, eh, like what's the point of this? Like, yeah, like, like, like he's just being a dick to be a dick. It, they literally just made him be a dick. So when he died in a terrible way, it, you would be like, yay! Instead of oh no, uh, right. which his death was the most cartoony because you have him fighting a little girl, um, right. and then what was he? he got stabbed in the neck by a screwdriver or something? Yeah, 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 and then she she cut him in half. Yeah, and then he just starts, like, hobbling right toward the table saw that's still running at this point. And it's like, oh, this is is the most cartoony death ever. And then he goes across, and then even that is, like, the CG or whatever effects that they were using for that were so cartoony looking that I was Mm. laughing more than going, oh, at that one. Like, there were a lot of the kills that made me just shiver a little bit. Like, the wine bottle one, there's one with the hook that got me. and But the table saw, when I saw the preview, I was like, oh, that's going to be the worst one. And it was the most cartoony of them all. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Um, One scene that I kind of did like, though, and I know, I think every horror film has a moment like... um. You know, in, in every film, you know, the screenwriter calls it the dark night of the soul. Actually, I don't even think it was a dark night of the soul moment. I think it was a moment where it's like um, Vince Vaughn was in the in the ladies in the department store and his and his mom was talking to him. Well, well, the character who's in his body, uh, mom was talking to him from outside the dressing room. I feel like that was a nice heart to heart moment between those two characters. I feel like that that scene was written well in a film that's full of tropes. It, see, I. 
I got to disagree on that one. I felt that that one was really? very ham-fisted in its approach and everything like that. I think maybe it's the way Vince Vaughn and, and, the, and the lady who played her mama played it. What's her name? Um, got it right here. Oh, man, where is she? Oh, uh, Katie Fenneran. I think I, I think I like the way uh, Katie and Vince played the scene. Yeah, they played it well, but the dialogue was just very uh, not natural in any way. Like, it, you could tell that this was like a scripted scene that needed to happen in this movie. It didn't come off as natural in any sort of way. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I respect that take, but I, I liked it. Yeah, see, I, I was not a fan of that scene. That was probably one of those scenes I was like, this is just going on too long, and this is just getting preachy at this point. You know what, man? It, I, I, I'll give you this. The, the, the one scene that I thought was kind of, uh, come on, was the, the final line, you know, where she, uh, you know, where she kills the butcher, and she's like, yeah, I am a catch. And I'm like, come on, you're going to oh, end yeah. there. <laughs> Like, I, I just laughed her, at that. At least give her a non-stereotypical badass final girl moment. Like, come on. Yeah, I, as soon can't. as she grabbed the, the table leg, I was, I was one hundred percent like on the Bloomhouse side of thinking, going, "Oh, she's going to end this with going, we'll table this for now." And I had that, that in my head. Great. I was waiting for it because I. As soon as I know Bloomhouse and their puns when it comes to their kills and everything like that. So every kill, I was waiting for that pun. And the end one where she had the table leg and I was like, what's going to be? What's it going to I'm going to table this for now or we'll table this for now. That's going to be it. That's going to be the end line. And then she said that and I was just like, oh, that was they dropped the I ball. Would, I would have accepted that. Give me that. Give, <laughs> at least I, that would have that would have gave a smile. Made me have a smile on my face. Not, oh, I am a catch. I'm like, oh yeah. my gosh. Oh, that was so gossip girlish. Like, oh, on. I will say that the one scene that, you know, the one line that I was like, oh my God, the person that came up with that one in the writing room just deserves a clap because that was hilarious. Well, I, like is, black, I, I, like, I like your black wiener dog or that line. No, 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 no. That was hilarious as well. But uh, when she was running from like the three guys in like the back room right before the hook scene, they were like, oh, three of us. You got three holes. The math lines up. And <laughs> I just laughed. I, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. I think that was one of the moments where I watched where I went to the bathroom for a few seconds. But um, I that that does sound funny. Was that was that the one before they tried to before they tried to rape her? Yeah, that was like during the scene where they were trying to rape her. It, oh, it was okay. like what he said right before, like she started attacking them. And because it's just so out of nowhere for that line and everything because it's like this tense moment and they're all like surrounding her and then he just goes there's three of us you got three holes it lines up <laughs> it's just like oh my god that is whoever came up with that line in the writing room just bravo you you that's did your part pravingly genius that's the pravingly genius yes <laughs> yeah um it, yeah, it's man, so far up. out of what i expected to be said during that scene that i loved it <laughs> As much of a hot mess as this film is, uh, I give it three out of five. I'd have to agree with that. This is 
it, yeah. it's a little bit above average, but yeah, it for me it just falls into too many of the tropes accidentally and not doing, you know, as much as mockumenting or mocking them as I was hoping. Yeah, yeah kind of, uh, I, I, I give it a three. Comedy Vince was back. Catherine was pretty good. I uh, I give it a three. I give it a three. Yeah, I, I I'd even say a three point five. I don't know if I go that far. Uh, I'm I'm solid at three. Yeah, I I'm between a three and a three five. I'd say it kind of deserves it because the Vince Vaughn moments were great. There were a lot of good comedy bits in it and stuff, but you know, outside of that, it just it, it faltered in a lot of ways that I was not expecting it to. Definitely. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, we're gonna take it way back, way, way, way back to the 1940s. Even though this came out this year, um, 1930s Fincher's... and the 1940s. There you go. My bad. Uh, we're gonna talk about David Fincher's uh, new film, Mank. Uh, so this is um, this is based on a script that David Fincher's father wrote, Jack Fincher. Um, he wrote the script in the 90s, even though um, and, uh, David never got the chance to make it until recently. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a script that his father wrote in the 90s, and now he uh, finally brought it to life. And this um, uh, revolves around Herman J. Mankiewicz, who is uh, responsible for the story, who was responsible for uh, creating, co-creating, you know, it's arguably co-creating the story behind one of the greatest films of all time, arguably the greatest film of all time. Citizen Kane. Um, I love Citizen Kane, dude. I love that movie. I, I, um, you'd really be having to, you know, take that hot take pedestal if you said you didn't like Citizen Kane. You know, oh, we we'd stop talking exist. about this movie and we'd start talking about that immediately. <laughs> yeah, those, those those people exist that don't like that movie, and I I think it's a hipster thing where it's like too many people love this movie that I hate it. Like, yeah. like, if, like, 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 so many people love Star Wars that I figure when my wife watches it for the first time, she's gonna be like, "Why do people love this movie?" Like, I feel like some people are like that with Citizen Kane. Like, they hate it just because it's, it's cool to hate it. Right. Um, it's a talking yeah, point of like your personality to hate this movie that everybody else loves. Definitely, definitely. Um, and and I, I say all that to say, you know, it's always been interesting. It's always been a subject of. Well, not much debate, but it's always been an interesting subject to talk about when you discuss the development of Citizen Kane and how Orson Welles, who's the big, you know, the big creator of the project, the director, the writer, the star of the film, um, and Herman Mankiewicz, somewhat silent role, but not really silent because he still got his credit, but silent as well as it's debatable because even to this day, there's still different sides of the story. But mm-hmm. th- anyway, this side is about Herman Mankiewicz. You know, it's a um, it's a frame story, and uh, David Fincher actually he actually shoots the film as a 1940s film. Well, I say 30s film, uh, black and white and all. You know, even with the screen crackles. Um, mm-hmm. Herman Mankiewicz is a uh, he's he's given a little um, a rental house or basically basically a place to. Uh, to lay in bed, uh, he has a broken leg from something that happened, and he's he's basically writing the script for Citizen Kane while um, speaking on the phone with Orson Welles. All the while, he's reminiscing on his past life as a uh, controversial uh, rabble rouser in uh, Hollywood. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the film Pretty constantly a- goes back and forth between the 1930s and the 1940, which is the current time in the movie, yeah. uh, when he's writing the outline storyboard for Citizen Kane. Yeah, there you go. Um, how'd you feel about this, man? Uh, I enjoyed it. There were a couple times where I at first got confused by it switching back and forth between the timelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was by like the fourth swap that I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a reoccurring thing that's going to keep going back and forth. And because I didn't read up anything on the movie, I knew that it was like the story of the writing of Reservoir or not Reservoir, Citizen Kane. And yeah. I just kind of went into it with that mindset. So it, the I am. Um... Time swap got me at first, but I liked it. I, I think that, you know, it, it does a good job of seeming like an old time movie. If you would have told me this came out in 2020 and before or after seeing it and not knowing that previously, I, I would have kind of had to look that up to confirm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, well, I um I, I I did get I had to get used to the the time shift as well as well when I was watching the film. Um, I like the scene headings when it goes back in time to kind of like let you know okay this is gonna be a flashback scene. Mm-hmm. Um, very very uh very clever on David's part, Fincher. Um, yeah, I liked um I I feel like this is a type of movie where it it it, it offered me engagement and when I engaged with it and said okay let me see where this goes I. I was rewarded. Like, I feel like this is a film that you have to engage with because it's not a typical, it's not a typical film. Yeah. This is Uh, very much like a critics film. This isn't so much that Hollywood blockbuster. Oh, definitely not. not. It's a very slow paced movie. Uh, It's all dialogue. There's really no moments like outside of dialogue for you to tell what's going on in the movie. Uh, I feel like, there, there is drama. There is drama. There but, is like, drama, but it's kind of subset by the future and the past. So all the drama is in the past scenes, it seems. Yeah, I um, you know, one of the things that I I love about this movie is that uh, Gary Oldman, man, he he just he just sold me into make to make the moment the film started. Like you know, oh, yeah. just his 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 personality. You know, his um. His kind of drunken, you know, uh, alcoholic suaveness and and kind of nonchalance too. Um, yeah, he he sold me into this guy because this seems like this is a guy who, who is applauded for what he does as a, as a storyteller, but as a person, he he's not really that much liked. E- even his own wife has said to him like, "Look, man, I don't even know why I'm married to you. I I just like watching the train wreck." Like there's that one scene that's like, damn, your own wife said that to you. Yeah. But and that kind of like tone with her goes throughout the rest of the movie too. It's not like it's yeah. just that one scene where she says that and then it kind of passes off. You understand it, why? Yeah. She, you she feels this way. Uh, because he has like a huge gambling addiction. He likes to kind of bring up trouble whenever he can. Right. You, you can tell. Um. Did you grow up with v- Bill Nye, the science guy, as kind of like the VHS? What did you feel like when you like heard his voice in the background, like giving the speech in the one scene? Which uh, as Upton Sinclair? 
Uh, I can't remember who he was playing, but I remember he was like doing some soapbox kind of speech at one point when uh, he was walking, notice, when Mank walked outside. I didn't even notice that was him. Yeah, he was yeah. Upton. He was Upton Sinclair. Uh, he was the um, he was the politician that Mank sided with. Um, that was in opposition to um, uh, William Hurst, who was played by Charles Dance, who does another, who, who's also great in this film. Um, basically, the guy that that um, he was against, Upton Sinclair, who, you know, little known fact, he wrote the book Oil, which uh, inspired the film There Will Be Blood. But um, I, I, yeah, I didn't even notice that was Bill Nye. I didn't notice. Yeah, as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, I recognize that voice. Why do I recognize that voice? And then it did like the close up on him, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's Bill Nye! What oh, is wow. Bill Nye doing in a movie?" <laughs> well, I guess he sold me then because I did not—I I did not notice that was him. Yeah. Um, I—I want to talk about, and I, and I think, I think this 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 relationship is interesting. Um, I don't really know what it is or whether it's platonic or could be in another life more than platonic, but the inter- the relationship between Gary Oldman's character and Amanda Seyfried's character, who is Marion Davies, who um, is the mistress of William Randolph Hearst, who over time becomes kind of an enemy of Mank and is really the subject that Citizen Kane is based off of. Yeah. Hearst. Yeah. Um, she pops in a couple times in the past things and then, uh, She's one of the people that even tries to convince him to change the script for Citizen Kane uh, yeah. because it would anger Hearst and, you know, it would cause some drama. Right. Um, right, right. It's, it's basically a David versus Goliath story. Um, I, 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 I liked Amanda Seyfried's performance, but I, I kind of did not understand Mank's relationship with Marion. I, I did not understand it. Um, I, I saw it kind of as like colleagues that know each other and they kind of see in the same light for most of the issues and everything going on. Like, okay. even when Mank is kind of going, I don't know if this whole like MGM thing is going to work out. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, he ends up talking with her and then you see the next scene with her. She's going, oh, I already left. I'm going to Warner Brothers. You know? <laughs> yeah, I like that scene. So uh, it, there's definitely that kind of like uh, it similarity in their mindsets because there's the one scene where they're walking through. I I can't tell what they're walking through. It was like a garden zoo thing mm-hmm. in the backyard of uh, Hearst, I think. Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it it, it was a garden they were walking through, having a heart to heart. Um. Uh, I I don't know um, uh, what was I about to say. The, this film, like, it has a lot of. I can tell it has a lot of inside 1930s Hollywood jokes to it. That's why I think lo- lends to its authenticity. But dude, the dialogue here is so damn witty. Like, it is. I, I I love some of the moments in this film, like when Mank and his wife go to a dinner party with um. Louis B. Mayer, who was from, you know, MGM, Metro Goldwyn Mayer, who's kind of a dick. Um, and, uh, you know, William Hurst is there, too. And his wife is like, if you got nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. And, like, for the first three minutes, like, Mank is just quiet while everyone's talking. Yeah. There's a lot of great scenes like that in this movie. 
And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, because, uh, what is it? There's even the dinner party that they're all at and everything like that. And you can see Mank, like, drinking and drinking. Oh, yeah. And yeah, then... The big climax where he acts a fool and uh, we learn the story of the organ grinder's monkey, which I love, by the way. Yes. That whole story. Yeah, because they allude to that earlier in the movie when he uh, yeah. is talking with somebody. And he goes, do you know the story of the organ grinder's monkey? Right. And it's basically, um, you know, breaking it down, which and this is where this is where you feel for Mank. But at the same time, Mank has kind of like screwed himself in a way where it's like. The organ grinder's monkey. The monkey is dressed up, and he's he he goes out with the with the organ grinder, and he feels special because when he dances, the organ grinder dances, so he feels like he's in control. Whereas, the organ grinder is is well, not not him specifically, but the organ grinders were people who specifically made the monkey feel like he's in control. They're in control, not the monkey. So, Mink, of course, is the monkey. And he's always felt like he has clout, but really, you you don't. Yeah, somebody else there. is really in control and just making him feel like he has control. And I said, man, that's the most, ugh, that is the most eloquent way to shut down a person and say, you you, you, you don't know what game you're playing, son. Go, go away. Yeah. Yeah, I've never actually heard that uh, analogy used before. So this was a new one. So even when he said it at the beginning, I was like, the organ grinder's monkey. Okay, I'm going to have to look that up later. And I then, of course, it lo- gave it up. Yeah, I stopped myself from looking it up right then. I was going to be like, all right, let me hold off and see if the film's going to explain it. If this is going to be one of those Fincher things where I'm like, man, I got to go look this up. I got homework. But yeah, I like to explain it. Yeah. Um. You know, some people. I I I I think I read a review where a critic didn't like him. But um, how did you feel about Tom Burke as Orson Welles? I I didn't think he was bad. I didn't think there was any bad performance in this one. Uh, I yeah. think everybody was good. Uh, obviously Gary Oldman blew it out of the park with his role. Right. And but I didn't think like anybody was miscast or anybody did a bad job in this. I agree. Um, the only character where I was a little like, eh. Why is she here? Um, uh, is a uh, Lily Collins character. Um, she's the secretary that stays with Mank at the house while he's writing the script. Um, uh, apparently, Susan Kane in the film gets her name. Susan Alexander Kane in the film gets her name from her character, from Rita. But I was like, I really don't see why Rita is is her character is in this movie. Like, I I was a little lost as to that. Ah. Uh- well, she was the one that was transcribing everything that he was saying, right? Yeah, yeah, she was the secretary. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't uh, have an issue with her at all. Um, it's not really an issue. I just felt like I I don't know what, re- what really she added to the film. Um, I could see that, but at the same time, if she wasn't there, it would have you would have felt the lack of her being there if you knew the overall story. Like, it's one of those things that you can't really cut out from the story because she does actually have a role in the making of Citizen Kane. Hmm. Okay. I got you. Um, hey, did you know who the one guy was who visited him? And um, and he said to him, like, I didn't make 
you you're the one that made yourself court jester. I don't know who that was. I I, I vaguely know who that was. Was he was he somebody from earlier in the film? Uh he was. I'm trying to remember who he was because he wasn't the Bucky for uh, him. Uh, but I he was in one of those rooms when he was doing like the gambling thing. Okay, I think it was uh, I think it was Joseph Mankiewicz. Um, yeah, it was Joseph Mankiewicz. That's his name. I didn't know if that was like his nephew or because I remember him earlier in the film. Because yeah. I think he was related to him, right? Yeah, he was very early in the film. And then he came back in a little bit later for that line. Um, but yeah, I can't remember what his relation to him was. Yeah. Or his um, name, actually, either. I couldn't remember any of that. There were yeah, definitely like- a lot of moving parts in this movie when it came to roles and people and everything like that. And it did not help with the like forward-backward and keeping track of everything. I um I liked I I I I liked the ending. I I felt like the final confrontation between him and Orson, where um he's like you know I I want credit for the script. You know it's my greatest work. Um I I liked it. Um again this film kind of takes you know it, it, I believe it takes uh liberties with 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 factual accounts because I don't think the whole thing is credited to make in real life i think making orson both had a hand in it but i like that he's like listen man i want my credit all right i, mm. I, I wrote i outlined something great here and i'm proud of it i in that kind of reneges a contract they had earlier on and you know orson is orson you know throwing things around like how dare you you know yeah. I, I think he was like that in real life i think he was really a loud guy but yeah. um well, there was even the scene like uh, a little bit before that with the one guy coming to visit him and trying to change, convince him to change the script because yeah. it would upset Hearst. And, you know, uh, Mank even goes, I'm washed up, man. What can I say? And he just, as he's getting in the car, goes, this is the best thing you've ever written. And then he just gets in the car and drives off. Or this right. is your best work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was his swan song. Um, yeah, this is a this is a this is a very difficult character here. But I feel like that's kind of like David Fincher's forte. He loves difficult characters. Um, I gotta say, and we'll I, I, we'll get to the rating in a minute. But on a scale of great Fincher films, you you put this near the top. Um, I don't know I, if I, I do. I wouldn't put it at the very top. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. But I I'd put it above the halfway mark. Listen, man, um, there's just something about Seven Fight Club and the Social Network that I feel like those three films are like like the the key great Fincher films. I yeah. feel like this film, like this, this doesn't film... surpass his best work in any means, but it's not his worst either. I say it's one notch below Zodiac. I I could agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I I I liked it. It it is it is a pretty it is a pretty good movie. Um, but as Fincher's best, I don't know if I give it that. Yeah, I wouldn't but say me, this is Fincher's best, but it's by far not Fincher's worst. I I appreciate the artistry that went behind this. Like he really did try to like make this look like a 1930s film, and you know he he does it well. 
Um, I give this I, I solid four out of five. Yeah, maybe I, if I watch it again, four point five, but solid four out of five. I, I think this one falls at a four out of five for me. Um, I think it's it doesn't go low enough for a three point five, but at the same time, it doesn't reach that four point five to me. It, it, this is a solid four. I think if you really like this movie and you rewatch it and catch on to more things with time, you could give it a four point five. But that's 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 up to the individual. Uh, I plan to watch this again someday. Uh, there would have to be some scenes that I completely like glossed over this first viewing that pop out of nowhere on a second or third viewing for me to change my position on this one. I think it's a solid four. Uh, I don't think it's anything higher than that. Okay, fair enough. Um, fair enough. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Um, it's, it's definitely a. I wouldn't say it's a critic film, but I say it's a it's a cinephile film. I, it's a cinephile yeah. film. Yeah, if you're a fan of like Citizen Kane. Uh, you kind of want to see a little bit more in depth of the making of it. This is a good movie for that. You know, were you, were you feeling the Nine Inch Nails music on this one? It didn't really grab me as much as they did with the past Fincher films. Um, you know, I it didn't stick out to me as not fitting in, but at the same time, I guess I didn't realize there were the Nine Inch Nails songs in this one. Right, they they really did try to make it 1930s. So you know, shout out to Trent Atticus for that. Um, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I I liked it. I liked it. It was good. It was good for what it was. But yeah, so Mank versus Freaky. We're we're putting Mank above Freaky. I, I think Mank, Mank is above Freaky. If you're putting entertainment value, though, I think Freaky over Mank. That's fair. That's fair. If you put if you're putting uh, uh, Freaky is the film for the moviegoer. Make is the film for the cinephile. Yes, that that's okay. where I would put these. Uh, I wouldn't. It, it's hard to kind of compare the two and be like, oh, this one's clearly better than the other because they're in completely different categories, aiming different at movies. completely different people. It's, it, it's two different movies. Yeah, it's like trying Definitely. to compare the Care Bears movie to Saw. You know, <laughs> it's it's you, you can't really do that. No, no, you really can't. Um, hey, we got some things to talk about before we before we shut this off, man. Uh, Tom Cruise. Tom oh, Cruise, his man. rant. You know what the worst part is? Everybody's like, "Wow, he's such a dick." How could he say those things? And I'm just standing back, going, "I actually agree with him. I don't agree with how he said it, but I 100 percent agree with everything he said." Yeah, I was going to say, it's quite the opposite. I think a lot of people are in agreement, you know, me included. Like, yeah, man, these people screwed protocol. This is COVID-19. A lot of studios are watching them make Mission Impossible 6 right now. And you guys are kind of like, or is it 7? I can't keep count these days. Um, The the next Mission Impossible. (laughs) There you go. You're fumbling the bag. You know, like, like, and this is a life or death thing. I don't think, I don't even think like Tom Cruise was just mad because of money. I think he was mad because no, dude, we're 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 saving jobs here, and you guys mm-hmm. are not caring about wearing a mask. Like, come on. Yeah, I mean, I I think he did go a little overboard and everything, but it's at the same time I one hundred percent agree with everything he said. So it's kind of like that thing of going, okay, I I one hundred percent agree with you. 
but you're being an asshole. <laughs> I think he kind of needed to be, though. I, I feel like people say, yeah, you're talking to them like children. I'm like, well, be adults. Wear a mask. Like, yeah. like I, I didn't have a problem with the cursing. Um, See, it wasn't I, I so much like... the cursing. It was just, it, you know, uh, imagine being that, like, person that, you know, took off their mask to get a drink of water. Then Tom Cruise comes up behind you and goes, bitch, I told you to wear a mask at all times. And it's just like, oh, I can totally feel that the one dude is just sitting there, just staring at Tom, just going, I don't, I, I can't speak up talking... against him because it's Tom. Oh, he was talking to multiple people. It felt like he, he was in a room full of people talking to him like, Oh, hey. it was two people. Oh, it was? Yeah, it was two people that were uh, close together with by a computer and one of them didn't have a mask on. So there was a whole, as long as I'm understanding it correctly, there was two people, one of them had a mask, one of them did it, and Tom Cruise was yelling at the guy without a mask. So to imagine being the guy with a mask on, just listening to this happen behind you. (laughs) I mean, the way I look at it, I I get it, though, I get it, but it's like, if one person doesn't do it, then another person's not going to do it, and then the ball keeps on rolling. Sometimes... And I'm not. I'm not trying to sound cruel. Sometimes you got to make an example out of people. Like, yeah. Sometimes you got to, um, because other people look, watch, and learn. But you know, the irony is now productions on that production on that film is canceled now. Is it? Yeah, they canceled it. Uh, last time I checked, uh, Tom Cruise production canceled. Oh, I didn't know that uh, the production on it got canceled. Yeah, I mean. They weren't playing. Um, hold up, hold up, hold up. Tom Cruise COVID nineteen uh, rant causes five crew members to quit. Tom Cruise wraps Mission Impossible seven production early. Yeah, I, it was, oh yeah. Um, wow. Okay. It, it is what it is. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, like, I, yeah, I get it, but I feel like. Yeah, he needed to go off. Yeah, that was it, a it was a valid rant that just kind of went a little bit too hard, I think, for yelling at a single person like that. Right. Uh, if this was like in a crowded room or something like that, one hundred percent justified. But the fact that it was just aimed at like one person, you know, he he ruined that guy's day one hundred percent. Oh, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, I don't think it was as bad as when Christian Bale went off on the uh, cinematographer of a uh, Terminator Salvation. I was like, "Damn, Christian Bale's kind of being a dick." Oh like, like, yeah, you remember that audio bite? I yeah. remember that one. That one was beautiful. Yeah, uh, um, he's like, he's like, if I can meet you within reason, I can meet you within reason. He said it in such a Tom Cruise way, man. Like I could <laughs> picture him saying that in a role. <laughs> but yeah, that that was definitely. Uh, but not only that, but uh, going back even to our last episode, we mentioned the HBO Max deal. I was just for, about to mention that. Yeah. The fallout. The fallout. I could not have seen that fallout coming because we talked about it basically right after it was announced. Like it was announced earlier that day. So the full details of it weren't even out yet when we were talking yeah. about it. You know why we couldn't see it coming? Because we, just like the actors and directors, assume that Warner Brothers would have told them before right. they pulled this off. We assume like Warner Brothers isn't just going to do that without making deals on the side. 
But then we look, then we step back and say, oh, shit, they did not tell people. Yeah. They just did it. Um, I can't remember which director said it, but uh, he was like, it's like going to bed working for the best movie company Chris and Nolan. then waking up working for the worst streaming service. It, it was Chris Nolan. That was Chris, Chris Nolan? Nolan's, Chris Nolan has been showing his whole ass lately, and I, I, I love it, man. Oh, yeah. Like, because usually he's like reserved and keeps his personal opinions to himself, which is, you know, a tactful move. You know, it's being a gentleman about it. You know, everybody thinks of different things differently, but he's mm-hmm. been showing his whole ass like HBO Max is the, is one of the worst streaming services ever. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Yeah, he is going off. Uh, who's the um, the director of Dune who went on a huge rant? Dennis Villeneuve. I think his was more um his was more uh pragmatic and respectful. I feel like he he and I'm not saying Chris Nolan was dis well, Chris Nolan was he was he was kind of being a little petty. But um Oh, but, he was one hundred percent being petty, but he was being petty yeah. in the most entertaining way possible. Yeah, he was. Um uh, but Dennis Villeneuve, I feel like he was more pragmatic and respectful. Like, listen, I was willing to delay Dune by one or two years. I I, I didn't have to have it come out next year. But to just put it on streaming with with theaters, like I mean, let's be real here. He wants people to watch. This is a guy who's read Dune and loved the story since he was a kid. Like he wants people to watch Dune in theaters. I want to yeah. watch Dune in theaters, but he understands that it's a different time right now. So he says, "I'm willing to delay it when COVID nineteen kind of goes away." But you guys are, you can't watch my movie at home. I can understand. I understand where he's coming from. I understand him. Yeah, there's there's a lot of movies that like uh, Godzilla versus Kong, even with my theater rod room, I couldn't imagine seeing that just in my theater room the first time. Uh, Suicide Squad. Yeah, another one. I I need a theater for this. Like these are movies that if things are closed down in Michigan, I might be going, you know, how much is a tank of gas to get down to Ohio? Let me see. Calculate in a theater price, the ticket, popcorn. Yeah, I think it's worth it. (laughs) I did it for Tenet, man, and I was satisfied. I went to Ohio to see Tenet, um, and that was the only film during COVID I went to go see. Well, the drive-in, I saw some films that drive-in, too. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, man, I agree. Uh, yeah, man, and especially when, especially when, with, with Wonder Woman, there was a deal made with Patty Jenkins and um, Gal Gadot. Like, okay, we're going to negotiate streaming back-ends with y'all uh, for doing this. But it's like you couldn't have made that deal with the other directors and actors whose films are going to streaming and theaters. Yeah. Oh, Disney learned from this. Who was there were some actors that even came out and were like, so what does this mean for my contract? Because their contract is like based on the film getting past a certain amount of uh, tickets sold and stuff. So how does that affect it for streaming? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, agents for uh, Denzel as well as some other actors were pretty pissed. And, like, uh, dude, I got to say, man, listen, Warner Brothers has done a lot for the game, as has other studios. But this was kind of irresponsible. It, this, this was a massive screw up on their part. Because uh, when it was announced, it was like kind of going, I wonder how this is going to play out for them. And then little did we know the next morning we were going to find out exactly how it's going to play for them. <laughs> I did, This was more of a. No, not more, but this was almost as much of a fuck-up as was the management of MoviePass. I, I wouldn't quite put it up to that level yet. 
We'll, we'll wait and see. see. The fallout. We'll, <laughs> we'll have to see the fallout, but it, it could be potentially because like, it takes a lot of balls, but a lot of missed foresight to pull something like this off. Um, now I can commend it from from a, from a health standpoint, but you don't make a deal like this without negotiations or or some some things set in place. Yeah, there's you can definitely tell that this is a move to try and boost HBO Max because HBO Max is failing on all fronts. And yeah. a lot of that is because of AT&T. Dude, I don't even think it's failing. It just came to no, Roku. No, it's, it's failing. It's bleeding money for the servers and everything that they're paying for really? in order to provide the service versus how many subscribers they have. They're bleeding. Oh, okay. I got you. The, the, the money put in is not matching the, the money. The money, um, the, the revenue was not matching the money that's put in to create it. I got yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, they're ble- saying. like for most streaming services, like for Netflix, Hulu, Disney, like even Disney's bleeding a little bit on Disney Plus. They'll be all right. But they're expecting to be profitable in like three plus years or something like that for Disney. Uh, yeah. Hulu, they managed to turn to a balance i guess not profitable but balanced enough to function where it's meaningful to be a continue as a service uh, a couple years ago uh netflix is still bleeding money technically but theirs is kind of the we're changing the landscape of things and there's hope for them in the future uh hbo it, they're probably they're pretty much going if this continues the trend where it is it's never going to be profitable for AT&T um way I'm looking at it um I man I I'm shocked to hear that cuz I think HBO Max is is great content wise they got every season of Doctor Who you know that's you know how hard that is to pull off yeah like every but season at the same Doctor time who. do you know how much they're paying to get every season of Doctor Who yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Um, the way I looked at it was, um, if Warner Brothers own, if Warner Brothers owns the content, uh, I would feel like if you own the content, that that's why so many of these studios have their own streaming service, right? I mean, uh, it's for HBO, it's different because a lot of those are made by different companies. Like you have Legendary behind mm-hmm. uh, Godzilla yeah, yeah, versus yeah, yeah, King yeah, Kong, yeah. so you got to pay Legendary for it. It's not just Warner Brothers gets to put it on the streaming service. I get that. Yeah, uh, Warner Brothers actually doesn't own a lot of the movies; they just distribute them. So they get a lot of money from distribution, but they don't actually own the movies. Hmm. So they still okay. have to pay the fees to get those movies on the streaming service. Hey, man, you're 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 breaking down something new to me because I did not know the politics behind this. Um, OK, I did not know that um, the way I look at it. It's not easy to be king, man. There's a reason Netflix is where they are. Yeah, there's a lot of that's a lot of hustle. That's a lot of years put in. And that's a lot of. um they know how to manage their profit, man. They're not they're not new to this. HBO Max is new to this. Like 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 Hulu isn't new, but Hulu came a little bit behind Netflix. Like like, you know. And Hulu came in with a different mindset where they right. partnered up with uh television channels and everything like that and were like, hey, we want to give you a platform for streaming where you don't have to pay the money that uh Netflix is wanting and stuff like that for their server space right now. And obviously it all flipped and eventually Netflix started having to pay people for content instead of the other way around. Uh, but Hulu got in on that 
perfect timing when uh people were like okay we'll pay for like the space to be on the streaming box and then you pay us per view and stuff now it's just large contracts going we'll have your stuff on our boxes don't worry let's let's take a pause for a second man because i this is the irony behind this even as a fan i'm laughing i'm laughing my ass off like you know you you um you either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. People are hating on Chris Nolan these days, man. Like oh, ever yeah. since ever since he said what he said, and and I think people I understand his point of it with the whole tenant thing. I think I think a, a part of him felt his film was gonna save things for theaters, but it kind of kind of didn't. But that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means it didn't save things. Um, but I, I feel like he looked at it from the point of hey. The money, it, it made what it made. I'm satisfied with it. I just wanted it to be, you know, in theaters first to see what would happen. Um, people are starting to talk like I, and you could tell some of these people they're not really they're not really Nolan haters like that. They're just jumping on the train like they'll make mm-hmm. comments like, Nolan, I didn't hear you behind all that expositionary behind all that sound design. What did you say? <laughs> oh yeah like, the people that mock like the director tropes that we get all the time i, I love those jokes uh i've seen a couple of those for nolan yeah like um and dude he said something to me that kind of threw me way back but i'm like you know what i can see him liking that movie he said he has a guilty pleasure for uh uh fast and furious tokyo drift yeah i can see it i can see him liking that movie like like Sometimes you wonder if, like, some of the most prestige directors like, you know, guilty pleasure films. And I'm like, okay, I can see him liking Tokyo Drift. Then at one point he said, listen, man, um, I love Alien 3. You know, David Fincher made that movie, but he hates it. Um, he hates that movie because mm-hmm. Fox didn't let him do what he wanted to do. And uh, he says, but I, I would be very, very bold to tell David to his face how much I love that movie because I know he would just be disgusted. <laughs> Not with him, but just talking about that movie. <laughs> yeah, that I. It's definitely interesting to kind of get those viewpoints from directors and everything. And yeah, it with uh, Nolan's kind of completely. Uh, he's not trying to save face at all with this. He's digging deep down and going, "Yeah, this is what I believe in right now." Yeah, I, I feel like there's a moment for honesty. There's a moment to be pragmatic. Um, I like I like Dennis Villeneuve's. I know I'm not saying his name right, but I like Dennis V's uh, approach to uh, talking about the Warner Brothers thing with Dune. Um, but yeah, Chris Nolan is he's he's going in, man, and I, I love it. Yeah, it, um, it's definitely interesting to see this perspective. But I. I'm really curious to see how the tune of some of these directors change or actors change at all. If uh, this deal ends up working out in their like benefit. Yeah. um, Disney, man, Disney, I'm telling you, man, other studios are going to learn from this, from, from what, from the big move Warner, Warner media just made, you know, Disney's making negotiations because, they just, I mean, they just dropped the ball, man. They they keep winning. They might not be winning too much with Disney Plus, but that comes with time. But they just keep winning, man. They 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 announced nine Star Wars spinoffs. Oh and yeah, I haven't even watched Mandalorian yet. I'm the, like, they got Lando. They got yeah. That they, Disney investors meeting was basically Disney just came out, threw their dick on the table, and went, "You see that? Yeah." <laughs> 
that's exactly what it was, man. And then you have FX shows moving to Disney Plus. Yes, this is gonna that's gonna make them a real Netflix. When you can separate the adult content from the kids' content, oh man, they yeah they they're gonna be a problem. They're gonna oh, yeah. be a problem. It, Disney, I like I said, I think their projection was they were supposed to be profitable in three years. The way they're throwing money at these shows and everything like that, they might not be profitable for a little bit longer. But man, that catalog is gonna be packed. And it, imagine the Disney Plus catalog in just five years from now. Just think of oh. where that catalog is gonna be, because everything yeah. they announced is coming out in twenty one, twenty two. Man, I. Let me tell you something, man. If 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 thirteen year old Anthony was around, he'd be he he he'd be hugging himself like all these movies, all these TV shows. You know, I, I would be hugging myself, right? I still am. I still am. The adult Anthony's hugging himself, but it's like, dang, dude. It's like this is what a time to be alive kind of moment right here. Yeah. Well, not only that, but. Everything that was announced, it, pretty much they were just going through and announcing stuff one after the other. And I was just like, oh, I want to see that. I want to see that, too. Oh, my God. That sounds amazing. You're that, doing that, too? Me, too. I, I Listen, I, I, again, I, I, I am going to watch The Mandalorian. I heard it's great. But I, even not watching that show, I felt like the Wookiee in me was kind of like, oh, oh, my God. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I saw all of these things. I said a show for Lando. Is it going to be Donald Glover? Is it going to be Billy D? Is it going to be back and forth between present time and past? Like I didn't know what was happening. Then I saw the guy who was going to be behind the show, Justin Simeon, who um who made Dear White People, which I love. Yep. I'm like, this is this is dropping the ball on everything, and I'm like, dude, I'm, yeah, man, I'm I'm excited for them. Yeah, I'm almost disappointed that uh, Disney didn't end that investors meeting by just holding out the mic and dropping it. You know, that that was the only disappointment of that investors meeting. <laughs> you know what? If 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 Kevin Feige or whoever would have did that, I would have been like, you know, oh man, you deserve he, he it. deserves <laughs> that. He deserves that cocky moment. I would have <laughs> clapped my hands. Oh yeah. It, that was great. Uh because even like on the Marvel side, I'm trying to remember what else was really announced, but I just know the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. And I was just like, oh, that is, I want that so bad. <laughs> yes, man. They're, listen, man, I think they are fulfilling the dreams of Disney fans, Wookiee fans, Marvel fans alike. They are, they are making dreams come true right now. Yeah. D- Disney is saving things. Well, Kevin Feige, I I would just love to be a fly in, you know, the doorway of some of the meetings that he's in right now. Because think back in 2008, he was jumping onto the train of a company going bankrupt that was trying to make a series of three movies and wasn't yeah. sure if they would even be able to get that far before they had to close down their studio for Marvel Studios. And that man is. Yeah, it, now he basically is being given, you know, the the keys to the kingdom of everything Marvel. Like, he can go, yeah, I want to make a movie based on, you know, this one villain from, like, Spider-Man, you know, Electro. I want to just make a movie on him. And Disney's just going, how much money do you need for it? I, I, I Listen, I, I imagine he's probably in his room... And somebody walks in, some some auteur director that 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 has the chops of uh, James Gunn, um, but the drive of James Cameron saying, OK, I got an idea. Buddy comedy between Deadpool, Wolverine and Spider-Man. 
<laughs> Let's do it. Here's your check. Yeah. Wait, are you serious? Let's do it. Like, I, I imagine that's what a meeting is with him. <laughs> Oh, see, I would also love to know the meetings with uh, John Favreau and Disney when they were doing uh, the season two of Mandalorian. Because season one was very like in itself, but season two like started going into expanded universe stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I've heard things. Yeah, I've heard things. Uh, without spoilers or anything on that, basically, I assume that like John Favreau came into the room and Disney was like, "So, you know how we told you you can't play with any of the other kids' toys." Here's their toy boxes. You can have whatever you want. <laughs> Dude, I know that's a director's dream. Oh, like, yeah. To be given a blank. Listen, and when it's a director that's good, when it's a storyteller that's good, to be given a blank check, they're like, all right. Like James Cameron, I think James Cameron's going to have competition these, first, these next few years because he he's, he's with his box office receipts on Titanic, Terminator 2, Avatar, he's really allowed to do whatever he wants. But I think with with other directors, given that kind of free realm, he's going to have some competition, man. Oh, yeah. Um, especially I'm trying to remember the uh, brothers, uh, the ones that did the Avengers Infinity War Endgame Lego Russo. movie. The Russo Russos. Brothers. Yes. Um, they are on his ass, it, man. They pretty much have an open ticket to do whatever they want. Um, Listen. <clears throat> They, they, they just need one more Endgame film, and they are in James Cameron's ass. Yeah. They're on his mind. Uh, then, on the other side, you have... I'm trying to remember who they are, but the guys that were behind Game of Thrones, where they were like the hottest directors for several years, and now nobody talks about them anymore. David and DB. Yes. Yeah, they're... Um, because they're... Uh, aren't they working on a Star Wars film? Uh, no. No. They got fired from that. Well, right, they, they said that away. they decided to walk away from it to work on this Netflix deal that was one-tenth the money they were going to make from Star Wars, which is a very good choice to right. walk away from, you know, <laughs> Star Wars money to go make a Netflix series that still hasn't been announced. I mean, here's my thing on that. Listen, we're all pretty scarred from that last season of Game of Thrones, okay? I get it. It was it was kind of a bad season. Had great moments, but kind of a bad last season. But those guys can write, man. They're not bad writers. I don't know. They completely killed a franchise that was like one of the biggest things people talked about. Nobody's talking about it even a year later. All right, all right. Did did they kill a franchise or did they try to go off an outline from a guy that writes at his own lethargic pace? And said, listen, man, just because y'all made a show doesn't mean I'm going to change my writing schedule. It might take me 10 years to write this. I I think they they killed a franchise because nobody talks about Game of Thrones anymore. No one. That's sad, man. That's that's one of the most. Oh, man. I I feel like when I was in it, uh, what do you call that thing? Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah. I was watching it, man. I was defending every episode. I got (laughs) I, I, I grew tiresome. But people were like, Anthony, are you really defending this bullshit? I'm like, yes, I'm defending this last season. This is a great last season. And then when you step back and look at it all, it's like, damn, I, I understand Daenerys turning evil. They they could have built that up a little more, but mm-hmm. I understand that happening. But this and, and, and Bran is the new king, and it's like, I, I don't understand all of this. Like, this, this didn't go well. Like, it, if you drop it as, like, story points... It makes sense, but then you go, well, you got to have things that lead up to those. (laughs) 
I feel like everything was on level 10. Every, this is a whole nother episode, but I feel like everything was taken from five to 10 with that last season with some character points. Like Jamie going back to Cersei makes sense to me. It did make sense. Um, I know he was making a change, but sometimes old habits die hard. That made sense. Should have had more build up to it. Should have had more of a tussle with whether he should go or not. But it made sense. Yeah. The build up didn't make sense. That last season should have been two seasons of full ten episodes each. There you not go, sir. Seven episodes. They it, definitely killed that franchise. If if it was if it was fifteen episodes, they would have had more time to build up to some surprising moments instead of just adding one surprising moment after. Listen, the White Walker battle was great. Arya saving the day. Oh, the parts that you great. could see were great. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I thought that was an artistic thing that you couldn't see anything because uh, it was night, right? It was the long, dark night, right? Part of it was, but the rest of it, it's like I, I don't want to just hear swords clashing each other for an hour and a half. I want to actually see something. I got you, man. Um, yeah, here's my thing, dude. I, 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 I like those guys, man. I don't think they, um, I don't think they're bad writers. But they're going to need a comeback story. They're going to need a Terminator. They're going to have to work to get out of the hole that they dug themselves in. I agree. They they need to they need to do something. Because when you got Seth Rogen, who I hear is like one of the nicest guys in Hollywood, saying, yeah, you guys fucked up a great show yeah. at Comic-Con. <laughs> because you don't show up to Comic-Con to earn your shit. Like, I would at least show up to Comic-Con and be like, hey, man, if y'all didn't like it, I'm sorry. I, I did what I could. Damon Lindelof, and I like Lost all seasons, but Damon Lindelof, he 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 took the shit when people said they didn't like the last season of Lost. He he took that, and he came back with Watchmen, The Leftovers, and co-wrote Prometheus. So he 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 took it. Yeah, I think David and DB need to take it, internalize it, and make something great out of it. We'll see what happens with the Netflix uh, movies or show, whatever they end up doing with that Netflix money. But yeah, they definitely got fired from Disney. There's no yep. way that they were walking away from Star Wars money to do an unannounced Netflix project. But I, I gotta say, man, I I, I mean, we kind of digressed a little there. I think Star Wars kind of fires a lot of people, though. Didn't they fire um, my guys who made 21 Jump Street and hired Ron Howard for Solo? Um, if I recall correctly, they walked away due to disagreements with Disney. But that could be the same thing you say for David and DB that well, they walked away. But the difference with that one, I think that one was them actually walking away because Disney was trying to push a lot of what they wanted in the Han Solo movie. And okay. they probably okay. were disagreeing with it and stuff like that. Uh, when it came to the new Star Wars trilogy, they were pretty much given a blank slate of saying, you can do whatever you want. Okay. Hey, oh, hey, one more thing, man. This And this just warms my heart right here, man. Dude, the new Spider-Man movie. You got you, you got oh, Tom yeah. Holland. You got, you got, um... Andy well, hold on. Bobby. Tom Holland hasn't been announced in this movie yet. <laughs> He's gonna be in there, man. man come on. <laughs> stop, stop with the jokes. You got, you got Tobey Maguire. You got Andrew Garfield. I'm like, oh, shit. They even brought back Darnell Wallace, and his only line was, he just stole that man's pizza. I'm like, dude, this is gonna... They're, listen, they're making a live-action remake of, uh... Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse. You know what's happening. Yeah. It, it, we're gonna definitely see because apparently, um, latest rumors have 
well, the people that are confirmed right now are Doc Ock, uh, Doc Ock, Electro. Uh, so far, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are not confirmed. Those are just rumors. But at the same time, uh, okay. who is it? Christian Wig or not Christian Wig? Um, uh, he plays uh, Mary Jane in the Raimi Spider-Man. She's confirmed. Raimi. Uh, the original oh, Spider-Man oh, training. Oh, you're yeah. talking about Kristen Thurston Dunst. Kristen Dunst. Dunst. That's yeah. she's confirmed to be in it. Um, you have. She hasn't been confirmed yet. Oh. Uh, she. It's kind of like one of those expected ones. Uh, but you also have Doctor Strange confirmed. But then on the like rumor list, you have uh, Charlie Cox coming back as Daredevil. Uh, okay. You have Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire as Spider Man, um, Emma Stone as blanking on her name right now in the comics. Uh, was it Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane? Gwen Stacy. She played Gwen Stacy. Mm. And I want to say there was another one for a rumored uh, role of yep. somebody coming back. Um. Oh, um, Green Goblin from Sam Raimi, or not Green Goblin, Hobgoblin, um, James Franco. Um, he's okay. rumored right now as well. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for that. Um, dude, I got I, I got to tell you something, man. I'm really excited for that movie, but with all the developments I'm hearing about this Justice Justice League, this film better be fire, man. Like and and like I said, I got my reservations about Zack Snyder, but he is a very great visual director. This film better be fire. It, it's it starts in March apparently. Because I'm hearing so many things. There's no post credit scenes. Oh, we're gonna bring Jared Leto into it. We're gonna have this. We're gonna have that. We're gonna have. I'm like, okay, man. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to you. But this better deliver. I guarantee uh, the people at AT and T in their conference rooms—they're just all crossing their fingers, just going, "Please let it be good. Just please let it be. It doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be great. Just let it be good. Just let this got, be good." We got too much money on this yeah. to be bad. <laughs> we just wanted to just slightly above mediocre. Just let it be slightly above mediocre. <laughs> Uh yeah man um this is this is this is a great time to be alive dude uh well covid sucks but this is a great time to be yeah. alive for superhero fans this is the like this is going to be the year for superhero fans for comic book fans uh not for like the classic movie goer I want to see Iron Man on the big screen those people but for the people that like dive deep into comics and love the lore behind them and want to see those on the big screen this is your year. Definitely. Um, I, okay, before we close out, I, I wanted to talk about some movies I've seen lately. Um, Andy, first of all, let's start with you. You seen any movies outside of these? Uh, outside of these, I'm trying to think of what I've actually watched lately. Um, Did you peep Tenet yet? Not yet. Because uh, that one I'm waiting for the 4K Blu-ray to come out. Should be already out, right? Oh, did it come out? I thought it was coming out later this month. Still, I thought I saw it at um at a Walmart. Oh, it might have Their come out already. Price. Then I just I honestly don't leave the house and see those kind of things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got you. I, I remember hearing Christmas, and I guess I have it in my head that it comes out the week of Christmas. I got you. I definitely understand. Um, but go ahead. I'm listening. Um, yeah, I can't remember what else I've seen. Uh, the days kind of just blend together at this point. <laughs> oh, man, I hear that. I hear that. Um, dude, I, um, my wife and I actually watched a pretty good movie, man. Kind of a, kind of a gem, uh, Jeff Bridges, uh, Fearless. It's a, uh, it's a 1993 film about, um, this man who gets in this, uh, this plane crash and, um, him along with a few people survive. And at that moment, he just becomes kind of like fearless of life. He kind of, he, he's not numb, but mm-hmm. he feels like ever since that moment, nothing can touch him. And it's a great feeling, but it's also kind of has its detriment as, you know, he kind of has a wife and kid and he grows a connection with another survivor. And it kind of like blends. It kind of like distorts reality for him. Cause it, and this it is with of, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, this was back in 1993. OK, um, very good movie, man. Very powerful film, dude. I, I've always heard about this movie, but I never watched it. Um, it has Isabella Rosalini, you know, our, our girl from Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. uh, Rosie Perez, John Turturro. Pretty good movie, man. I, I, I would suggest it. Hmm. I'll have to add oh, that one to the list. Yeah, it's good. Dude, I, I checked out and listen, man, d- with, with disaster films, I, I feel like the last great one to me was Day After Tomorrow. After that, they're all kind of the same to me. But you know what? You know what surprised me? Um, a Gerard Butler film, Greenland. Greenland. Um, right. it, it, it looks like the typical Gerard Butler film, dude. It, it's it's a it's a near disaster movie where he has to save his family. You know, Earth is about to be destroyed, and you know, it's a race against time. It, and it's it a has good a, one. Yeah, I was surprised, dude. Like the action in it was good. Like it listen, it's it, it's not Oscar worthy, okay? But it was a very entertaining um apocalypse thriller. Like it was it was very it was the tension was well done. And I feel like you know at a point where Liam Neeson's Taken came out, we had kind of seen all that we needed to see from those films, but Taken did something different. Yeah. Specifically with that Liam Neeson monologue like I will find you. And I will kill you. Like, like Greenland does something different. Like, I, I don't know. Like, the tension was good. Like, it's a well-done action film. A planet-killing comet hurdles toward Earth. Dude, it's generic as hell, but it's such... <laughs> it's a good... It was a good movie. It was actually well done. Okay. Like, it's like... It's like if you take this totally ridiculous... Well, not ridiculous, because, you know, stuff like this, you know, it's not ridiculous. But if you take this overdone premise in Hollywood and actually like be serious about it like be serious with attention um that's what this film is man it's pretty good um oh yeah it looks like it's on hbo max and amazon prime right now uh could be uh starting the 18th it says uh, okay um but yeah that's it for me man um what are, what are you thinking you thinking uh wonder woman and and pixar soul for the next episode being that they both come out christmas day um yeah, I'm up for that. Okay. Yeah. Uh all right, folks. This was a long one. Haven't seen each other for a while. Um, but uh thanks for tuning in to another episode of uh Double Feature Versus.